in philosophy, in theology, in psychology, and in just everyday, ordinary life, our starting point, where we begin, our most basic assumptions and presuppositions about how things are make an enormous difference in where we wind up. If my basic orientation to life, my basic assumption about life, for example, is that life is an unpleasant problem to be solved, things will be far different than if I see my existence as a wonderful and mysterious adventure to be lived, to be lived with gratitude. The point is one made by the great French philosopher Paul Ricoeur, who said, there is no philosophy without presuppositions. Our presuppositions, and we all have them, but our presuppositions are in one sense expectations of what we will find at the end of our investigation. And all too often we find that what we, ex we find what we expected, whether it is there or not. But there's also a second point to be made, and that is that we know very well from the hard sciences that the method of study selected can itself predetermine the scope, range, and results of our research project. So the question then becomes, what are the presuppositions of the historical critical method? And what are its results, consequences, and problems resulting from those presuppositions and assumptions? You know, I'm going to hit the pause button on my thought process for a moment here. I, I want to make a change in the terms I am using. From now on, as much as I can remember to do so, I want to refer to scholars as either confessing or non-confessing scholars, meaning they either affirm what most Christians at most times and places have affirmed, or they espouse atheism or agnosticism or uh, some philosophy that while it may include some concepts of divinity or superficially embrace and resemble certain Jewish or Christian ideas and values is nevertheless something well outside the definition of Judeo-Christian thought. I'm doing this because the words liberal and conservative are just not clear enough, not precise enough, nor uh, are the words liberal and evangelical. Uh, there are certainly liberals who question much of the historical critical method, and there are conservative and evangelical scholars. I'm not talking about fundamentalist, but evangelical scholars who utilize much of the historical critical method in their own studies. As uh, really I'm doing here. As non-confessing scholars, people like Rudolf Bultmann, Philip Davies, Bart Ehrman, and Marcus Borg come immediately to my mind. By confessing scholars, I, I think of I have in mind people like C.S. Lewis, Carl Barth, Michael Langford, Larry Hurtado, Richard Bauckham, Hans Urs von uh, Balthasar, 
Carl Rahner, N.T. Wright, Keith Ward, Martin Hingle, and John Bailey. That's uh, not meant as either way as a, an exhaustive list, but uh, just as an indication of uh, what I'm thinking there. Moving on then, the first presupposition of non-confessing scholars or higher criticism or the historical critical method in general is that the Bible is a human creation or product which must be read like any other book. Indeed, it cannot be otherwise, since God either does not exist or is a non-material, impersonal reality, uh, more of an it than a person. Since this reality as, um, is not a self, it cannot disapprove or approve of anyone or anything. It never intervenes in human affairs, and there is no human God communication, not, not even in prayer, although prayer may feel good to the person who is praying. There is no divine human fellowship. There is no I-thou relationship, and therefore, even the remote possibility of revelation or inspiration is excluded. Now, there's an obvious, here is an observation, or perhaps more of a question or even a puzzlement I have regarding God as explained by non-confessing scholars. This is a kind of excursus, of a footnote question. The philosophers and theologians of higher criticism, this non-intervening, non-listening, non-personal, non-God-God non, uh, that uh, Marcus Borg, for example, describes, who strangely, or perhaps uh, uh, in a rather contradictory fashion, while not a person, nevertheless, says Borg, we relate to personally. Our relationship is evidently personal in the same way that a child's love for her pet rock is personal, involving oneself and not two. But I'm, I'm not to my question yet. Borg claims, and I believe him, he claims to have had mystical experiences of this ultimate reality he calls God an experience that was wonderful and glorious and thoroughly convinced him of its or God's reality. So here's my question. Why will Borg, as an example, not grant the same evidentiary value to the experiences of joy and wonder and love and enlightenment and ecstasy Many have experienced of God as loving Abba or Amma, or as gracious Messiah, or as uh, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, or upon suddenly having their heart awakened to the living truth of a scripture text. If my own experience and the experience of countless others 
holds the 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 possibility holds any possibility of being as valid as that is, as that of Marcus Borg's experience, then maybe, just maybe, more than a purely secular reading of Scripture is appropriate. Maybe it is sacred in a deeper sense and in a more foundational way and substantial way than someone like Borg imagines. <clears throat> Second proposition uh, of non-confessing uh, scholars uh, is, uh, is the presupposition or assumption of uh, radical suspicion. If there is no God, at least no God in the sense of ancient and traditional Judaism or classical Christianity, then obviously God played no role in the formation of Scripture, which is Borg's point. The Bible is therefore to be read like any other book, meaning not for entertainment or encouraging slogans or uh, historical information, but as a purely human product whose claims to truth and wisdom may be investigated and disproven, its integrity is from the very beginning to be questioned and challenged at every point. It is to be suspected of being false. You would think that atheism, whereof, whether of the hardcore variety of a Dawkins or a Hitchens or the soft atheism of a Thomas Hobbes or a Marcus Borg, in which it is imagined that there is something of some sort here or there or everywhere in the cosmos, a substance, an energy, maybe a process or mathematical equation holding everything together, you would think that atheism of either kind would be the end of biblical explorations, of biblical study and analysis. Beginning with my first class in philosophy to this day, I've just never been able to grasp why once someone had rejected Scripture as in some uncanny, mysterious, and inexplicably powerful sense, the Word of God, they would continue to bother with it. I spent a year studying Chaucer in the Middle English in college. I, I can understand why someone would become a Chaucerian scholar, but not why they would spend a lifetime in detailed study of a hopelessly corrupt book made totally unreliable by errors and alter, uh, alterations and mistakes and, and a basic ignorance uh, of the nature of reality. Nevertheless, beginning with Spinoza and Hobbes, at least that's where I would begin, and, and the Enlightenment enterprise as a whole, higher criticism, non-confessing scholarship, took on a rather militant stance against Christianity, and the Bible was read and studied for the obvious purpose of proving it false. 
God falls, Christ falls, Christianity falls. There are some more conservative or orthodox scholars uh, who use aspects of the historical critical method in their work. But from its inception, the historical critical movement has acted as a corrosive on faith. That's what it means to read the Bible as a human product. And that's what, uh, in the end, it means to read with radical suspicion. My own suggestion is uh, that radical doubt is no more help in the pursuit of truth. If truth is what we are really interested in, radical doubt is of no more help in the pursuit of truth than radical gullibility. A third presupposition of the historical critical method, followed by followed uh, by rigidly non-confessing scholars, says identifying various literary forms, styles and vocabulary, grammar and historical features in a text will provide information on the text's original source and where the text has been in, has been edited by various authors, their intent and their meaning. So Julius Wellhausen, as noted in an earlier podcast, came to the conclusion that Moses had nothing to do with the writing of the Pentateuch. It was put together from four sources, J-E-D-P-E source, representing a group of writers with a particular interest. However, the Jewish historian, eminent Hebrew scholar and rabbi Umberto Casuto, Moshe David Casuto, provided a devastating critique of the documentary, uh, documentary uh, hypothesis of Wellhausen. Casuto saw literary and source criticism as resting on uh, five um, pillars. The use of different names for the deity uh, was one. Uh, second was variations in language and style. A third, contradictions and divergences and divergences of view. Uh, and then duplications and repetitions and uh, signs of composite, composite structure. However, Kusudo said that the grammatical, stylistic, and vocabulary traits that seem to indicate a separate doc uh, that seem to indicate separate documents were in fact common in ancient Hebrew literature and language. And in fact, common in Hebrew literature and language in both biblical era and post-biblical era Hebrew documents. And even in modern Jewish writings, whose unity no one questions. And they also occur in other Near Eastern literature having the same linguistic derivation. This does not mean writers of the biblical text 
did not use various available sources in their writing. But it does mean that the results of literary criticism rest on a highly flawed premise. In fact, by the mid-1970s, the, uh, the uh, uh, documentary uh, hypothesis itself fell apart as um, uh, top scholars disagreed over the extent to which the sources Wellhausen proposed could be actually be found in the Pentateuch as well as the time to which they could be dated. When I was a junior in college and first learned of form and source criticism and the work of Wellhausen, I swallowed the bait and uh, struggled on the hook. The point the higher critics were making at the time, and which had filtered down to the ordinary person on the street or in the pew and the young students like myself, was that if Moses did not compose Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch personally, as the Bible claims, then the whole thing must be false. However, I eventually noticed that none of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, name any author. In fact, authorship was not considered important by the Hebrew culture in which these books were produced. It was only after Jewish culture came into close contact with that of the Greeks, the Hellenistic culture, which the which was uh, author-centric, uh, author meaning that they were very much concerned and focused on who wrote what. And, uh, and it was only then that the rabbis attempted to determine the authors of their scriptures. It wasn't until nearly the time of Christ that the tradition that Moses was the author of Pentateuch, of the Pentateuch developed, and not until the Babylonian Talmud, which was written between the 2nd and 4th centuries, that uh, the expression, the law of Moses, was equated with uh, Moses' authorship of the Pentateuch. I, th I think about this. Hammurabi, 1810 BCE to 1750 BCE, uh, the 6th emperor of the First Babylonian dynasty remains an important figure in the history of civilization um, for the great and more just law uh, uh, he produced, the law code he produced. Yet, if I refer to the law of Hammurabi, no one assumes I am asserting that Hammurabi and Hammurabi alone, without any resources wrote the law of Hammurabi. To refer to the law of Moses is a way of referencing what is being said, and it is not a claim about uh, authorship. Conservative Christians have indeed insisted that passages like John 5, 46 through 7, 47 
uh, affirm Mosaic authorship. And non-confessing scholars have then taken that and uh, used it against them. Uh, Jesus says there, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. However, it's not authorship that is under discussion in John or that is under discussion in Matthew when Jesus explains that Moses allowed divorce because the hearts of the people were hard, Matthew 19, 7 through 7. In both instances, the reference to what Moses wrote or authorized is nothing more than a way of appealing to the sacred scriptures as evidence. The question is not whose hand actually wrote the, the Torah, but what does it say and what does it mean? Confessing Christians need to be careful about getting sucked into defending things that they don't need to defend. I personally do not find it necessary to believe in an inerrant Bible with every page written by a particular duly notarized author to hear it in a voice speaking from beyond all human minds and with the power to transform my spirit. So I say unequivocally, I believe the Bible is inspired, is breathed by God, and is a trustworthy guide for my life. I just don't believe it in the rather mechanical or magical way a fundamentalist does. I'm trying to keep um, these uh, episodes to no more than, than 20 minutes, and so uh, I'm just going to stop here, and in the next podcast, I will begin to reflect again on uh, the presuppositions in the work of non-confessing um, uh, scholars uh, using the historical critical method of biblical interpretation and analysis.